If you get angry when you saw the distortion of the truth, the deliberate lying and distortion of the truth about the Christian faith, you're in good company. If you get angry when you see deception, fraud, and lying by some of our leaders, you're in good company. And when you get angry when you see children being exploited and used, particularly in the schools by those who are supposed to teach them, when you get angry, you are in good company. In fact, if you have never experienced righteous anger, I need to talk to you. (laughs) Something wrong with you if you don't experience righteous anger. Because righteous anger, rightly channeled, it produced some great things in our history. It was righteous anger that Wilberforce experienced that only caused him to abolish the horror of slavery, but literally changed the language and the discourse in the entire nation of England. It was the righteous anger of Shatsbury's that caused the workplace to be a better workplace as we see today. And the list goes on and on and on. I wish I had the time to tell you about how righteous anger, rightly channeled, can make a difference for God and for good. And some of you know, for years I've resisted going in the mass media. For years I did not want to go on radio. I did not want to go on television. But God literally dragged me to both. And then the reason I made my peace with it, and the reason I began to understand that there was a God thing, is when I began to see biblical truth being distorted in the media, and somehow biblical truth need to be explained. In a day when the gospel of false tolerance is proclaimed 24 hours a day. The truth needed to be heard. In a day when ignorance in regard to biblical Christianity is running rampant, truth is being proclaimed in 200 countries from this place. In a day when many in the secular media deliberately presenting Christianity as a religion of hate, as a religion of violence, the message of the love of God needed to be explained. And so instead of sometimes wanting to put my fist in my television screen, I'm now using it to proclaim biblical truth around the world. Paul exalts us, be angry, but sin not. Now, this is something that we all need to really learn to do, to be angry without sinning. But before I get into the messages, we are literally halfway, we're right in the middle of a series of messages entitled, Discover Your Treasure House. In the past six messages, we saw the contents of that treasure house. We saw the sufficiency of that treasure house. We saw the benefits of that treasure house. We saw the qualifications to get the treasure house. And then we saw the unifying power of the treasure house. We saw the responsibility toward that treasure house. And today, I want to tell you about the renewing power of the treasure house. So turn with me, please, to Ephesians chapter 4, beginning verse 17 to 32. And this whole passage, it seemed to be like Paul trying to contrast. They're trying to contrast what a Christian is and what a Christian is not. What an unchristian look like, what a Christian look like. In fact, 
You will do well to print this passage and give it to every person who has misguided views or headline views of what Christianity is all about. You do well to hand it to people who are confused about what the Christian faith is all about because this is the truth that the world needs to know about the Christian faith and about biblical Christians, not the distorted view that the media spreads around. When they falsely accuse us of being intolerant, and when they falsely accuse us of being angry, when they falsely accuse us of wanting to rule people's lives, when they falsely accuse us of being unloving and uncaring, you need to point them to the truth of the Bible that what says about Christians and Christianity. Just because there are a couple of bad apples throughout history who have abused the Scripture, it doesn't mean that we need to sit there and take it in the chin. Three things I want you to notice with me here. Three things about this passage. First of all, in verses 17 to 19, he tells us what an unchristian looked like. Secondly, in verses 20 to 24, he tells us what a Christian looks like. What a true Bible-believing Christian is like. And thirdly, in verses 25 to 32, he tells us how does the Christian live. First, What does a non-Christian look like? Verses 17 to 19. Paul said that without the light of Christ, a person's mind is dark. And the reason the mind is dark is because his eyes are blinded. And the reason why their eyes are blinded is because they deliberately choose to live in contradiction to God's original design for every human being when He created us. How does this happen? That happens gradually. That happens slowly. You start with baby steps. First, you reject the truth of God. You reject the commandments of God. You reject the absolutes of God. And then, slowly but surely, that person begins to lose sensitivity toward God. Do you know how to create a callus in your body? Most of you know. All you need to do is just keep on rubbing that part. Keep on rubbing. Keep on rubbing. And before long, there's a callus. You see people when they work with heavy machinery and ropes, their hands are rough and callous. Why? Because day after day after day after day, they're rubbing and that rubbing and the rubbing finally develops a callus. And that's what happens spiritually where people become callous toward God. They become indifferent toward God. Their hearts become hardened toward God. An addiction of any kind, it starts with somebody experimenting with drugs or sexual addiction or any addiction of any kind. They get introduced to it, then they keep on doing it in secret. They don't want anybody to know why, because their conscience is telling them that this is wrong. What they're doing is not right. But they keep doing it in secret, and they keep doing it in secret. And then slowly but surely, the callus begins to build up in their hearts. So they openly come up with it, and they don't care who knows and who doesn't know. Then comes the stage of openly, unashamed of what they're doing. And then comes, even as we've seen documented, there's some people who steal and cheat and rob to support their addiction. And then, in time, they lose all sense of shame. And in time, they lose all sense of caring of who knows and who doesn't know. And Paul said there are three things that happen as a result of this process. First, 
They become intellectually futile. Oh, you can't argue with them. Then he said what happens is that they deliberately ignore the truth and they live in ignorance. All the education in the world will not help them. And finally, he said, their ignorance further separates them from God. The heart becomes harder still. Hear me out on this one. I know of what I'm going to tell you. I have seen it with those eyes. I have talked to individuals who have done what I'm going to tell you. The reason immorality is rampant and accepted in the professing church, particularly among the hierarchy. It didn't just happen overnight. They secretly gave in to sexual perversion. And then in time, they came out. And then they demanded acceptance. And then they demanded legal protection. This is how the process, I saw how the process worked. I have absolute compassion for a person who's caught up in any kind of sin, in any kind of perversion, and I need to offer them the power of Christ to be delivered. But the reason the church's hierarchy have accepted it as the norm and they proclaimed it as the norm is because their heart is hardened toward God. The truth is that all of the acceptance in the world will not ease their burning conscience. All of the legal protection in the world will not ease their burning conscience. Do you know why? Because God designed us to live by His principles. God designed us to live in obedience to Him. God designed us to live by His standards. God designed us to live by His absolutes. And when His standards are violated, when His absolutes are violated, Life becomes a journey into self-destruction. That is the absolute truth. Some of you may remember in the Greek classics the story of a Spartan youth who stole a fox. And then when he saw the man from whom he had stolen the fox, he tried to keep his theft secret. And so... He stuck the fox inside his garment and did not move a muscle while the frightened fox was devouring his vital organs. At the cost of his miserable death, he would not own up to his wrongdoing. Beloved, that's a picture of those who are not biblical believers in our culture today. They are on a journey of self-destruction, tearing up not only their lives, but the fabric of our society. And we need to be crying to God on behalf of our nation. Do we allow the foxes of sin to tear up our society? And Paul said, this is how an unbiblical Christian lives. Secondly, he said, let me tell you how a Christian looks like, verses 20 to 24. The opposite, of course, is true. A Christian is a person who acknowledges his wickedness. A Christian is a person who acknowledges his failure. 
A Christian is a person who acknowledges his fallenness. A Christian is a person who acknowledges his selfishness. A Christian is a person who acknowledges his wrongdoing. A Christian is a person who acknowledges his rebellion against the holy God. And because of that, when he does that, God gives him a new heart. God gives him a new mind. God gives him a new nature. And God gives him a new way of life. That's the difference. We're not better? No. Never claim that. When Jesus Christ comes into our life, He radically changes it. Now think of the classic story of the hobo who was in rags, living in the gutter. You can smell him a mile away. And then the king comes in and asks him if he want to be changed. And when he does, he takes him to the palace. And there he takes his rags and burns them forever. And then he washes him and he cleanses him. And then he dresses him in pure silk garment. Now he's cleaned up. Now, of course, there are a few things about the old life that he needs to take care of. (laughs) He has to keep on internally dressing differently. He has to keep on internally looking differently. He has to keep on thinking differently. He has to keep on speaking differently. He has to keep on behaving differently. Not only that, but now he has a different goal in life. Now he has a different purpose in life. Now he has a different outlook on life. Now he has a different plan for life. In other words, he is now is conscious of the before and the afterlife. Have you seen those commercials about weight loss, before and after? Now a Christian is the one who's conscious of the old and the new. He's now conscious of the old life and the new life. He is now aware of the difference between a life in the slums and a life in the palace. He's now aware of the difference between a life that's in the gutter and a life in the penthouse. Now he's aware of the difference between the rags and the riches, spiritually speaking. There's one thing I don't want you to miss right here. Don't miss it. A lot of people do. They do themselves a disfavor. Paul never claimed that the transformation of Jesus Christ, radical as it is, will obliterate all of our memory of the old life. He never claimed that. He never claimed that you will not have moments when you are tempted to go back to the old life. He never denies that. The old life was always beckoning us. The old life was always tempting us to come back. You wonder why we give in to it. Why would we want to go to the slum after we've experienced the palace? But that's what happens. And yet there are times in the life of every Christian when they suffer from what I call spiritual temporary insanity. When you want to go back to the slums, you will experience some spiritual temporary insanity time when you want to, you may visit even the old life of the gutter. Oh, but it's always going to be a strange life for you. It's always going to be a strange life. That is not what I'm made for. That is not what I live for. I'm a stranger here, and you can't wait to get out back to the palace. Because of what you experienced at the palace of love and forgiveness and grace and blessings, a believer can never permanently want to go back and live in the slums.
And that is why, thirdly, Paul paints a beautiful picture, verses 25 to 32. He paints a beautiful picture of what life in the palace is like. And so he contrasts a life without Christ and a life with Christ. He said, the old life was corrupt, and it was leading to ruin and destruction. Oh, but the new life is as beautiful as God is. The old life was dominated by uncontrollable and undisciplined pursuits of destructive self-indulgence. But the new life is holy and righteous and pure. In fact, he gives us five vivid contrasts, five of before and after. Life without Christ and life with Christ. He said life without Christ was a life of perpetual lying and cheating and destroying people's reputation, which brought confusion to the mind that people didn't even know when they were lying and when they're telling the truth. Ah, but life with Christ is a life of truth-speaking. It's a life of confidentiality-keeping. It's a life of fearing God and not man, and therefore speaking the truth in love. Number two, a life without Christ is a life of uncontrollable anger, a life of seething rage, a life of deep resentment and bitterness, a life of selfish anger that lashes out when pride is injured. Ah, but a life with Christ and a life in Christ will experience righteous anger, it will experience sinless anger, will experience unselfish anger, anger that is on behalf of Christ, anger that is on behalf of others, anger that's on behalf of the weak and the helpless, anger that's on behalf of the persecuted and the exploited, anger on behalf of the truth. Whenever it raises its ugly head in, in your life and in mine, we know that's not natural. And we know that we need to resolve it before sundown. Why? Because the longer you leave it, the more door you keep open for the enemy to come in and create havoc in your life and in your loved ones. Thirdly, a life without Christ is a life of stealing, keeping that was not yours, taking somebody else's property, padding the expense account, cheating on taxes. Ah, oh, but a life with Christ is a life of joyfully working hard, of faithfully giving more than what's required of us, a life of earning more so we can give to the needy. Paul said it's a life of giving far more than getting. Fourthly, he said the life without Christ is a life of being foul-mouthed, caused cursing and cussing, a life of abusive speech, a life of hurtful words, a life of destroying words. Ah, but the life with Christ is a life of wholesome words, building up words, kind words, encouraging words. Why is that important? Ah, Paul said that's very important because when you speak words that are more consistent with Satan's characteristics than with Jesus' characteristics, you immediately grieve the Holy Spirit who's inside of you. You see, the Holy Spirit is a person, and He dwells in you. He's a person who has feelings. He's a person who has a mind. He's a person who has a will. And He said, don't grieve Him. 
And when you keep on using words that are not honoring to God, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. And the Bible calls Him the Comforter. And if you're going to grieve that who comforts you, who's going to comfort you when you are in times of need? He said that's important because you should not grieve the Holy Spirit. Fifthly and lastly, a life without Christ is a life of bitterness. Do you know why people are running around carrying so much bitterness inside of them. Some of you don't even know it. And they go to counseling, they go to therapy, and they go seeking help here and there and everywhere, but they're not getting any better. Do you know why? Because bitterness has a way of going underground. (laughs) Truthfully, Bitterness has a way. That is why the Bible calls it the root of bitterness. He didn't call it the fruit of bitterness so you can see it on the tree. He calls it the root because it's hidden. See, on the outside, people will think, oh, I'm fine. I've forgiven that person. I hold no grudge. Everything is just fine. But deep down, bitterness is digging roots deeper and deeper and deeper. Let me give you a test that I know I try it myself more than once. If you really believe that you have forgiven somebody, and you're not holding a grudge, you're not carrying bitterness toward that person, go and give that person a hug and mean it. (laughs) Good test. It works. The root of bitterness can develop an underground root system that ends up choking the person. That is why the Bible singles it out. Oh, but a life in Christ is a life of forgiveness. Why? Because I often say to myself, God did not hold a grudge against me when I deserved His wrath. God did not, He showed kindness toward me when I deserved His judgment. Then who am I to withhold forgiveness from someone who may have wronged me and asked for forgiveness? Who am I to withhold forgiveness? John Wesley made many profound statements. He once said, Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin and who knows nothing but Christ Jesus and Him crucified and I'll shake the world. Believers, the reason we're not shaking any worlds is because Our love for God is so faint. We fear man, not God. We don't hate sin. We nurse it. We rationalize it. We explain it away. And we know everything about everything except Christ and Him crucified. Let me tell you, want to shake your world? Take Wesley's advice. There may be someone here today who have never experienced the power of Christ, never still living in the world, you have never come to Jesus Christ in repentance of faith, acknowledging that He and He alone can save you eternally, forgive your sins. Today you can do that as we pray. Believers, ask yourself the question, what is God calling you to do to shake your world? A loving Father, we know that you see what no one else can see in us the very depth of our hearts. You know our motives and your thoughts. And Lord, we also know your word tells us from cover to cover this your desire for your children to live for you. 
And yet we keep putting one foot in each camp. And the words of Elijah cry out to us, How long will you fault between two opinions? If God is God, worship Him. And if He's not, then don't worship Him. Father, I pray in Jesus' name that the power of your Holy Spirit take your word, which is power in itself, penetrated deep in our hearts, cause us to honor you, serve you, above all, exercise righteous anger and channel it the right way to make a difference in our world for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.